Welcome everyone, welcome to the ShowCloud podcast. As usual, I'm joined by Hugh Rayner, one of our consultants within the team. So welcome Hugh. Hi everyone. Welcome to the new the new morning slot on this lovely November morning. Right, so we've got a couple of um, items that have come up over the last month that we just wanted to talk around and felt like they kind of related a little bit. There's a bit of a theme. And the theme is all around kind of, I guess, government level cyber activity, let's say. So we've got we're going to talk about the Iranian-backed threat actors, which have uh, compromised the US federal agency uh, via the log for shell vulnerability. We have got a little bit of a commentary around uh, the UK government that have committed £6 million to Ukraine cyber defences. Also related to the UK government, launching their vulnerability scanning programme, so scanning all UK-based um, externally facing IP addresses. We're going to little dig into them and we'll kind of pull out some themes along the way. We got we did get a question as well from from one of the registrants. Uh, so we'll cover that as well towards the end of it. So on the first part of course is the, the compromised US federal agency. So Hugh, can you just give me a little recap before we get started on the actual scenario here? Can you just recap me what Log4Shell is um, and when did we first hear about it? Yeah, so um, Log4Shell, I imagine most people by virtue of being on this call probably uh, remember 11 months ago, it was very big news then. So yeah, a vulnerability in the um, Log4J Java logging framework that actually existed since 2013. Uh, we became aware of it last year, and it was um, pretty big because it was a you know, trivial to exploit and affected hundreds of millions of devices, and it allowed remote code execution through injecting uh, strings into um, into applications that would then get logged and. You know, the, the Java would then go away and, and pull a Java object off a malicious server and uh, start running it. So, you know, not good at all. Hence the, the mad scramble at the tail end of last year, just before Christmas, to uh, batten down all the hatches. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you're quite right. 11 months old. This is the vulnerability right that's been used by the allegedly Iranian backed threat actors. So, they've compromised the US federal agency using this vulnerability. I guess, the question I would have for you is it's almost a year old, the vulnerability, and actually existed. I, as you said, back to 2013. So how do we find ourselves in a position where that vulnerability still exists 11 months after it was initially discovered? So what was potentially, you know, maybe we can have a chat around what we think might have happened there. What's the challenges to getting those things remediated in a sensible time frame? Yeah, I mean, I guess first off, good to mention the fact that although it sounds awful, right, having this uh, CVSS 10 issue out there for a year, it's not hugely uncommon. You know, we still see you know, Windows XP machines, you know, susceptible to things like Eternal Blue, that's many years old. But I guess the question here, yeah, is how could that happen in a, in a US government department? I think, you know, dealing with, with the public sector, things can be more of a challenge in some areas than we would expect in, in the private sector. Obviously, budgets are hugely constrained. So the available resources you've got to working on certain things might not be, um, might not be as, as high as you'd expect in the private sector. And I think this one is particularly difficult because unless you've got a really comprehensive asset register of you know hardware and software assets, the log4j framework is is a dependency as well, right? Used in in other applications and software from vendors. So unless you've got a completely comprehensive breakdown of you know all of the dependencies that the software you're using contains, some people might not have even known that you know that log4j was being used as part of a solution. So yeah, absolutely. Knowing asset registers and things is really important. Change management is also a thing I think in, in the public sector that can be quite difficult, quite slow process to get things approved and moved. 
certainly, you know, central government department, a lot of these systems are going to be really critical in nature. Downtime is not going to be acceptable. So anything that, you know, might need a reboot or a little bit of tinkering, people are going to probably be, you know, more reluctant to, to approve that. Changing priorities is probably also another big thing, I think. And that communication, you know, someone's tasked with something, but then something, you know, as it does all the time, really, something else more important comes in, you get a different pull from a different direction. Uh, so I think sort of a combination of factors really there that seem to affect the public sector more so than the private sector. Yeah, exactly. So a bit more of a, I guess, a bit of a perfect storm of things happening. And I particularly agree, particularly with point um, three, which is around the inability. Maybe you don't even know it exists perhaps in your network. It might be you know in multiple locations across different software packages bundled in as a dependency or a library. And therefore it's really difficult then to detect that unless you've already kind of got the the supply chain risk management piece really running well uh, across your, you know, your media estate, but perhaps also your third parties estates and so on and so forth. We've got a few people on the call. They'll be within organisations, you know, almost certainly in the private sector. What can they do now? What's what's kind of the takeaway here? What can they do to make sure this doesn't happen to them? That's happened to this US federal agency. Yeah, so I think um, as we sort of touched on, really, a strong asset inventory is crucial. You can't patch, you can't update, you can't remediate issues that you don't know are there. So having a good view of the world and understanding your asset inventory, including software as well, and having key contacts against those. So, you know, if you've got a a large vendor that you're relying on, having quick and easy access to their contact information should you need it. You know, for instance, to say, are you using Log4j as part of this application? Really important. I say secondly to that, looking for a, a good vulnerability management program. Again, it's all about being able to identify these issues. The ones that really catch people out are the unknown unknowns, right? You might find that, oh, I didn't know this system was was still online. I thought it was decommissioned three months ago. Well, if, if you think a system's decommissioned, no one's going to be in charge of deploying patches to it. And that's something we see quite a lot of. So a vulnerability management program to you know completely scan all of your estate, especially the external perimeter, which is going to be getting scanned by hundreds of thousands of people anyway, um, is really important and good to... You, know, you need to know about that. And then I guess yeah, the other third thing is, is probably ensuring that that clear communication and understanding of priorities, making sure you've got you know good dialogue with your team. If you've tasked them with something and then you task them with something else, you know, you should be able to understand where you are with things. Um, you know, don't just take everything as, as completed as soon as you've first issued it, because a lot of this stuff, you know, especially for large public sector organization, could take a very long time to actually complete that task. Yeah, exactly. We've had a question in actually during this. It's very related. So perhaps we'll we'll cover that now. So this is from Claire. So thank you, Claire. So Claire said, we have a huge problem with third-party suppliers not patching promptly for vulnerabilities. So not necessarily a question, a bit of a statement. I think I would agree with her and we see that regularly. So yeah, you can look after all your own stuff as much as you like, but supplier A, who's incredibly important for you, might not have the same level of interest, let's say, in doing the same thing. What kind of immediate steps could someone like Claire take in order to kind of get the third parties that they're you know, using their suppliers, um, the vendors, how can they kind of enforce rules around that? How can they kind of push them down the right path and see either it's a, you know, the right thing to do, it's a good investment of time and resources ultimately, uh, rather than just leaving it? Yeah, so I guess there's sort of two approaches here. Might be a little bit late for existing relationships, but, you know, things like you can include ask for it to be included in contract terms, right? Things like right of audit as well to review what your supplier is doing, really useful, you know, just tell them, you know, okay, I want to see what your SLA is for remediating internal vulnerabilities. Lots of you know suppliers will do that. 
I think secondly to that is um, you know technical controls on your end as well. We're always talking about zero trust architecture. We want to be designing our systems, our environments in a way that nothing is trusted, right? Especially you know third party suppliers because they are a big you know gaping hole right into the middle of your infrastructure. So yeah, basically zero trust. Don't assume that anything coming from that supplier is trusted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think also there's there's probably an argument for. Well, maybe in this case, Claire might be referring to they might use a third party company, for example, to manage their estate. For instance, it might be a you know managed service provider, and they might not see the same level of relevance. So I guess they'll be again probably saying back to the same points around the contractual side, making sure that's ironed out ahead of time, and that there are specific SLAs in there for you know a critical vulnerability of this nature needs to be remediated in X amount of time, for example, and so on and so forth. So I think there's a few things in there, but yeah, it's a it's a huge problem. The third party supplier piece is a huge problem not just necessarily on vulnerabilities but across a whole range of issues as well and it's something that i think businesses can struggle to get on top of and i think ultimately it's you know kind of think about this but there's not a lot of emphasis on that third party supplier to need to necessarily do something unless contractually they're obliged to do so of course so a big area that's i guess mitigated a little bit like you said from architecting yourself properly and not allowing such wide access in from third parties and so on and so forth, you know, giving them the, the kind of least privileged model uh, is probably Absolutely. the right, right approach here. Excellent. Um, anything else you want to cover off on the log for show stuff and the way it's been used in this particular attack or do you want to move on to the next topic? Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, good. So the next one was around um, the UK government committing uh, £6 million to Ukraine cyber defences. This is a story from probably a couple of weeks ago. I don't think it's a huge secret this kind of stuff going off and has been going off for a little while, but it's probably the first time that it's been kind of admitted to, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I guess it's the first time it's been publicly known that this is happening and publicly acknowledged that this is happening. So I guess first question here is why would the UK government be offering the support? What's the what's the benefit here? Well, I think, you know, we need to consider the fact that warfare is evolving, right? Land, sea, air previously, but, you know, cyber is, is now absolutely the fourth domain of warfare. And, you know, it's different, right? If someone fires a missile at you, everyone can see that. You can see the action and the consequence. But, you know, with cyber warfare, it can be more difficult, you know, especially some of the, the activities that Russia are doing at the moment. They're much less conspicuous, but hugely impactful. Things like spreading misinformation, really, really powerful techniques, as well as, you know, active exploitation and denial of service, which Russia are really hot on as well, preventing people from basically being able to get on with their lives. So, yeah, absolutely in cyber just as much as you know physical warfare is really important that we uh you know they're a nato partner it's important we support them yeah i couldn't agree more and i guess you mentioned their disinformation and um, so it's a when we talk about cyber warfare we don't just mean someone's you know exploiting something that's hanging out on the internet you know a power station or a train station or a motorway gantry whatever it might be or the banks that underpin a society but we're actually talking about the movements that you might make within social media, that kind of thing, to to destabilize, you know, a stable social model ultimately. And that's kind of what we mean by disinformation. So it can come from all sorts of angles, right? And it's not just where nation state A is going to attack, you know, country B, for example. So yeah, I think I would agree on all those parts. Um what kind of support is being offered under the agreement? Is that is that level of detail available at, at this point in time? Yeah. So um I guess at the end of the day, it's UK taxpayer money that's being spent on this, right? So, you know, the government have been quite open and forward with what they're providing. So I think we've got a list of what's currently been offered. So we're looking at things like incident response, helping the, the Ukrainians recover from cyber attacks, malware attacks and things like that. Also sort of network hardening, 
sort of consultancy and guidance around how to you know, design their networks, probably you know, looking at zero trust architecture and things like that to prevent future incidents occurring, providing them hardware and software. So, you know, I imagine that's going to be sort of security tooling, setting up seams, socks, things like that to help them, you know, identify these attacks before they have a huge impact. And uh, yeah, like we mentioned, DDoS protection as well. Yeah, it seems like a, a trivial thing, right? A denial of service attack has been going on for donkey's years. But when we're talking at the nation state level, you know, if you're taking down the, you know, take a, a UK analogy, if the NHS information pages went down, you know, people might be have chest pains and not, and, you know, go to type it in on the NHS 111 and, you know, not get, be able to get that information. So even things which aren't, you know, warfare related, you know, denial of service at the national level, you know, is really impactful. And also, um, they, they've been looking to provide some forensic capabilities as well, um, so that they can really, you know, deep dive into exactly the malware, the toolkits that are being deployed against them. Yeah, and I guess that helps us from a, our country, UK, helps us from a, an understanding perspective. So what are we facing here? What's the kind of, you know, TTPs, the techniques and procedures that are happening actually in the real world at the moment in time? So I guess we're going to benefit a little bit from that as well, the insights we'll gain from that which is good. Um, so that's all well and good. It's governmental level, country level stuff. How does that tie into the the organization, organizational space, the private sector space, so they get the people who are on this call generally? How can they you know, read what's happening out there and then kind of take that back to themselves, back to their own companies and start to have a look at whether they should implement similar things? What's the tie in there? Yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of what is being done as part of this scheme for Ukraine is, you know, sort of directly translatable. The threat model is different, right? The Ukrainians are actively being aggressively targeted by foreign nation states. And, you know, fingers crossed, not many private sector organizations, certainly, uh, you know, on this call would find themselves in a similar position. Something's really gone quite wrong if you are. But the processes we're doing, the sort of wider cyber transformation piece, upskilling, network hardening, all of that sort of stuff is absolutely, you know, easy to, not easy to replicate, but important to replicate. And it can be scaled, you know, proportionally to a small organization or, or a nation, really. Yeah, I guess the principles are right. That it's, it's, I like to think of security as a, an onion, I guess. And in terms of the many layers of, of where you want to be, so you peel back an onion, you've got a layer, peel back again, you've got another layer. And when you're talking about uh, implementing defenses in depth, then you're better off with a much a multi-layered approach rather than just relying on one single piece of work. The things that are happening there, all the kind of support that we're, that we're offering, and I'm not sure it's not just us, I'm sure there are other... Uh, nations around the world doing exactly the same thing. Those are constituent those constituent parts, elements of a good layered security program, I think. So I think people on this call can take that away and actually start to look at what's offered there and look and say, you know, what do we do in the incident response space? Do we have someone on hand to do forensic work for us? You know, is our vulnerability management program, is it adequate? Is it doing what we need to do? Are we getting the results out of it and so on and so forth? So I think there's certainly things that people can take away from here on this kind of piece that we're looking at here and, and take that back and start to implement that. Um, I guess final question on this one here is six million quid. Sounds a lot to me. You know, if I had six million quid in the bank, I'd be quite happy. But in the grand scheme of things from a from a UK government level, that's just pocket change ultimately, right? So it doesn't sound like a huge amount. What kind of things can people get for six million quid, I guess? Well, I mean, you can see large private sector multinationals engage in cyber transformation projects at four million or so value for sort of uh, just a couple of years so really when you're scaling that out to an entire nation that's hardly anything at all really right you look at the um the average cost of you know deploying a missile or something like that you wouldn't get many missiles out for your six million quid so 
you know, really the fact that the stuff they've documented they've gotten done is quite impressive, really. Wouldn't understand, well, I wouldn't know for sure what the extent was, but I can't imagine that it's you know, hugely detailed or um, you know, goes very deep or indeed wide across the country for £6 million because, yeah, it certainly wouldn't get you much. Yeah, exactly. We've had a question in from Jeff around SOC 2 type. Uh, SOC Type 2 reported and, and how that relates to supplier assurance. Now, before we go on to the next question, do we want to cover that now? And obviously it'll tie into more so the first piece, the first bullet point that we covered off. Yeah, sure. Do you want to take yeah. that or shall I? I mean, do you want to take it first then we'll kind of go in together as we're going along? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think SOC 2 reports can be really useful. Even with the content of the report set aside, the fact that an organisation has gone out and got a SOC 2 report is almost you know a really good indicator anyway. It basically shows that they're they're interested in and in looking out for that stuff. But yeah, also it really helps you, right? You get an understanding of the controls and mitigations and things that that they've implemented. And you know, looking at the items raised in that report, you can say, okay, this looks like their controls are in line with the standards that we set for ourselves in our organization, or you know, they fall short. And so therefore we're going to ask them to also consider, you know, this in the contract, or okay, these guys are, you know, way ahead of us in terms of their controls, probably pretty safe. If they're showing you a SOC 2 report, they're also probably going to be happy to share with you, you know, their ISO accreditations and things like that as well. So yeah, it can be a really good indicator of um, who you're working with. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. I think what it does do is, it, even if you don't look at the content of it so heavily, you just kind of say, well, it's a SOC 2 report, I'm happy with that. What it means is they're taking it seriously, ultimately. So there's a bit of investment. It's not an easy thing to get through. You have to collate a lot of data. So if you looked at an, an organization and your supply chain came and said along, you know, we've, we're SOC type 2 compliant, we've got ISO 27001, any other ISO 27K related standards, you kind of look at that and go, actually, you know what, you're probably taking things quite seriously. The SOC type 2 structure, I, I quite like the way it's put together. I think it covers quite a nice broad range of areas. Yeah, I think crucially, those two bits together. What it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that a supplier's infallible, won't have ever have an issue or compromise, but what it means is probably they're in a good position to recover from that. So you can take some comfort from that around your supply chain. I think if if everybody in the supply chain had a, that level of accreditation um, and the ISO and all these kind of other bits and pieces, yeah, you kind of go, actually, you know, I think we're in a strong position here. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So hopefully that answered the, the question for you, Jeff. So final point we were going to cover today, Hugh, was around the, the UK government. So back to the UK government again. And they announced that they were launching a, a UK-wide vulnerability scanning program. So I guess what that means is that anyone with an address space or an IP address in the UK address space is likely to get vulnerability scanned at some point. So can you just give us a bit more of a detail on what that means to you? What, what's kind of the implication of this here? What's the kind of new story? Yeah, so I guess first off is let's define vulnerability scanning, right? So we might consider the sort of vulnerability scanning that we do for a client, and this is not the same, right? So our vulnerability scans are going to be you know, probing for detailed information, you know, highlighting things that, that might be susceptible to exploitation. Certainly, you know, this isn't what the NCSC are doing that's quite sort of computationally expensive as well. They're looking for responses to web requests. They're probing services for version numbers. They're looking for sensitive information that might be disclosed in responses and, and accessible from servers. So it's not, you know, that deep dive probing. It's sort of surface level information gathering that they're looking to do. Yeah. Okay. Why would they be doing this? I guess is the next question. Yeah. So I think... 
in terms of why they're doing it, it makes sense and it seems quite good, right? So they're looking to build up a picture of the of the cyber landscape in the UK. They're constantly scanning these UK address space, you know, even twice a month or so. I don't know how frequently it's going to be, but say it's twice a month. They're able to then look at patching trends, see, okay, this first off, they'll be able to see, you know, what technologies are in use. Okay, X number of organizations are uh, using Apache on their web servers, something like that. They'll be able to see, okay, Apache have released an update on the you know the 24th of November. 10% of organizations had that update deployed by the time of the next scan, you know, 50% by two scans in time. So they're able to build up a picture of you know patching and remediation trends across the country and you know vulnerability exposure over time, which I think is really useful. And you know, unless you're investing a lot in a vulnerability management program, you know, it's not really the sort of information that an organization might be able to note down document themselves yeah exactly yeah i think there's a few principles that they've outlined as well which is minimal data uh, collection i think is what they said so they're endeavoring to not collect personal identifiable information so pii they're minimizing the data they do collect and say look we're just going to have enough to prove that this exists so you know kind of grab the versions like you said it's almost like kind of is this part open and i do a banner grab of it i'm like i say i'm not entirely sure it's doing a full fully fledged vulnerabilities assessment, let's say, or an audit of the, the services that's there. Um, but they also said that this is the first kind of step of it, ultimately can and probably will evolve into something else. And maybe down the line, it will become a bit more fully fledged, a bit more uh, featureful, for example. But I guess the question people might on the call might have, is this likely to affect them if they get scammed by the UK government? Is, is it likely to cause some outages, any problems, that kind of thing? So if it would, that would be a huge concern. Because, you know, so this is obviously they're not in your network, right? So this is a scans of publicly facing external assets, which are, you know, almost certainly if they've been online for more than 10 minutes, they're going to be getting scanned relentlessly all day long by, uh, you know, bots and, and threat actors. And certainly those malicious scans will be probing a lot harder. So, for instance, the government, if they find you've got, you know, FTP open and enabled, like Nick said, they'll be probably just doing a banner grab to get the version and things like that, they're not going to be trying to actually connect to that service. Whereas um, some of the botnets that are scanning the internet, if they find your, your FTP server, they'll try logging in, you know, as the anonymous user, see if they can access any files, you know, they're going to actually dive into these services. So certainly if you're not already experiencing issues, this isn't going to contribute. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out as well, the businesses can opt out of this. So you can email the NCSC and say, please don't scan these addresses and then they'll exclude them from the scans and so it's worth noting that it's not you can opt out of it ultimately um final question you is this legal so we obviously know about the computer misuse act as a security consultancy ourselves we'll be very you know much adhering to that and we wouldn't be out there just scanning random ip addresses that don't belong to us and don't belong to any of our customers we ain't got an authorization to do so i guess the question is is this legal well i mean i i i I suppose by virtue of the fact that this exists, that someone has probably decided, yes, it is legal, but certainly I would not, I wouldn't go and scan these IP addresses randomly. I mean, the Computer Misuse Act is, um, well, it's quite an old piece of legislation now, not modern, not really fit for purpose. Um, you know, technically you could argue that accessing a website that someone's told, not specifically told you you can access could be a violation of the Computer Misuse Act because you're not authorised, yet you've you know secured access to that system. The crucial part of the legislation is just because something is publicly accessible doesn't mean that that's 
akin to authorization. So yeah, it's old legislation, not really fit for purpose. But I suppose, you know, it's being done so widespread. We hardly see any prosecutions for the Computer Misuse Act anyway. If people actually do anything, they tend to get charged with things like you know, fraud, which carry much easier to prove for the police and a jury, um, carry harsher sentences as well. So yeah, basically nothing would happen even if it was, wasn't legal. Okay. And it's worth pointing out that there's a campaign and it's run by you know colleagues from other businesses in the industry that are trying to get the, the Computer Misuse Act updated to something a bit more modern, a bit more sensible. So certainly a campaign I, I would agree with the principles of it. I think they're in the right ballpark of, of having it updated and, up and changed. And therefore, this might well then, that activity, it happens anyway. So therefore, this activity might then become an okay thing to do. Who knows? I guess it's the questions there, isn't it? Okay, so I think that probably just about covers us off for today, Hugh. But now we had one final question, um, which I think I'm going to take the answer for, if that's all right. So fire away. I'll cover that one off. Yeah, sure. So I think it... So we put out the the bullet points of things we'd be covering in this session a few days ago. And I think it pertains to the one around the scanning that we just talked about. Um, and the question is, how can this be used in an operational technology environment supporting IEC 62443? Excellent, thank you. Right, so I'll pick that one up. There's multiple parts, right, to the 62443 standard, and there are two here that are probably relevant to this question. So part two, three uh, is related to patch management, and I'll cover that one in a second. Part three, one is the one you're referring to, right? So part three, one is the network and system security parts of the standard. There is a section in there that talks about vulnerability scanners or vulnerability scanning, recommends that you should do it for an OT environment and so on and so forth. With regards to this UK government vulnerability scanning program, is it going to be of use to kind of cover that requirement off in the 62443 standard? My view is probably not. And that's, the reasons it's probably not is because the standard itself is referring to more so your operational technology environment. And if that's hanging out on the internet, you know, not through any other layers and other controls in place. And we've got probably a bigger problem than just being scanned by the UK government. It does recommend that you do do scanning. And I think what the technology that the government will be using will not be tuned or able to do proper OT level scanning. So you can run, you know, various off the shelf commercial scanners against an OT environment. Ness has been one example, for example, you know, for instance, and there are many others on the market. They might not give you a particularly good picture of what's happening in the OT space. They're not tuned for that. It's not a, a tool for the. It's the wrong tool for the for the job ultimately. Um, so whilst it's potentially going to pick some stuff up on the perimeter, I wouldn't necessarily rely on it as being. Yeah, we covered that piece off from the standard ultimately. Now there's another way of looking at that question, which is probably related to part one of this direct brief, which is the log for shell stuff and talking about patch management. So in there. In that piece of the standard, it talks about maintaining inventories of software, hardware, all the other kind of bits and pieces, kind of the points that you mentioned earlier on here. So yes, there is a section in there around patch management and particularly around the inventories of what you're using in this OT environment. You know, what's the what the software packages are made, so what are the dependencies for those software packages, what are the versions that they're running off, and so on and so forth. So there is a section in there around that, which would, if you had that in good in a good place, you would kind of adhere into the control framework. That would have obviously helped you find the log for shell instances uh, well ahead of time, ultimately. So I think there was a couple of couple of parts to the 6443 standard which could relate to that question uh, and the things that we've covered off today. Uh, there's a question in um, as well from Samir. Uh, will it be a paid service to solve the vulnerabilities um, or is it an awareness program? And I think that's related to the, the government's kind of one. Samir, the answer is it's it's a latter, so it's an awareness program. It's not, it's not something the government are charging for. Um, I also don't think they're doing any remediation of it either. So they'll just let you know if there's anything glaringly obvious there. 
they'll let the, the owner of that net block say this IP has this problem on it. You might want to have a look at it and sort it out. So as far as I'm aware, at the minute it's just a free, obviously it's paid for by the by taxes and stuff like that, but free in at the point of use, I guess is what it is. I think at this point it might even be a step back from that. I I think at the moment, you know, like we said, this is step one of the deployment. I think at the moment it is more just an information gathering exercise. The NCSC will then be able to process and, and determine outputs from. You know, I certainly wouldn't expect an email, you know, personally written to you. Hi there. Looks like you've got a vulnerability on uh, on this service running on your external estate at the moment. No, I think it's going to be for you know big data gathering and, and crunching and processing. And you know, if they do see that a large number of organisations have got the same vulnerability, I, I would anticipate there'd be you know, a widespread just bulletin basically explaining x percentage of people are vulnerable to this we need to crack on and sort it out yeah i mean look if they are doing notifications of stuff that's bad in the scene it's going to be challenging to kind of work out who owns an address space because the who is data can protect can be hidden it's not necessarily always accurate for instance if you're using like a shared hosting service you're not going to be identified as the owner of that shared service for instance so yeah there's a couple of question marks i think ultimately and i guess how it works in practice will be really key to how it's you know, the success of it ultimately. Cool. Um, anything else you want to cover? You anything? Any other points you want to add in there? No, I think that's um, pretty good coverage of those three topics. Okay, good. So appreciate we've run over. I do apologise, everyone. This is actually our last one for the year, so we're going to take a break in December, celebrate the holidays and all that kind of good stuff, and we will be back in uh, January. We will get some content out over the December period, no doubt just won't be in this kind of live format uh, ultimately but thanks everyone for your support through the year thanks everyone for coming along to the the sessions repeatedly i see the same some some of the same names in week and week and month in month out sorry and it's really really nice for us to have that kind of cadence so again appreciate it see you all in january and thank you very much for your time for attending today